Good morning and welcome to The Bridge. Coming to you from our online studios at Hillcrest Parkway, this is the 19th week in which we've been presenting services this way. Our church chronographer, Jacob Orff, informs me that that equals 133 days, it equals four months and 11 days, and it's approximately 36% of the year 2020. I could go on, but uh, I'm sure you don't want me to. We're looking this morning at the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk is one of those names that you struggle for some time to learn how to spell, and uh, then a little more time to learn how to pronounce. Habakkuk was a prophet in the southern kingdom, ministering for a very short period of time, as far as we know. This is his only book, and it's only three chapters long. But Habakkuk comes to us with a problem that has plagued the human race since the beginning. And the problem is, how does God deal with human sin, and why does evil seem to be prevalent in God's world? God is, after all, all-powerful, He's all-good, and he's, He knows everything. And so, such a God, it seems hard to imagine that He would allow as much evil to take place as He does, because the world seems to be always involved in some sort of conflict, some sort of oppression, some sort of uh, people on the bottom crying out against people on the top, and sometimes they cry to God. And that was the case for Habakkuk. Habakkuk in the southern kingdom, uh, Jerusalem was the capital, and the temple of God was in Jerusalem. But for some years now, the spiritual and moral uh, temper of the southern kingdom Judah or Judea, uh, had been declining. Uh, in the northern kingdom, which split, the kingdom itself split uh, into north and south after the death of Solomon, and the northern kingdom was taken into uh, captivity by the Assyrians in 722. All the kings of the north were bad, without exception. In the south, the, the southern kingdom still existed, but it was coming to an end, and it had gotten progressively more evil and more far from God, farther from God, than, uh, than ever in the days before Habakkuk began to minister. The current king was Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim was an evil king who followed the idols of his grandfather, uh, Manasseh. He uh, also... Uh, began to tax the people unreasonably in order to pay the, the pharaoh of Egypt a fine that the pharaoh had levied on the land of Judea. He also used uh, conscripted help to build his palace. While the nation was in economic trouble, uh, uh, Jehoiakim was building a new palace for himself, and he used conscripted labor to build it. That is, he made people work without pay. Not only was Judea in a serious decline, but the nations around were in great upheaval. The kingdom of Assyria, the empire of Assyria, was on its decline, and um, it, was, it suffered two major defeats. 
uh, 1 in 612 and would suffer one shortly after Habakkuk's prophecy in 605. Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians were on the rise and they were the up-and-coming uh, world power. Habakkuk wrote this book shortly before 605 when Nebuchadnezzar raided Jerusalem and carried off uh, some captives, including among them Daniel and his three friends. The spiritual and moral state of his country is heavy on his heart, and he wonders why God doesn't do something about it. So it starts with Habakkuk's questions, and the book ends with his worship of the living God. There's background information in 2 Kings 23, uh, 36 through 24, 7. There's a little bit in 2 Chronicles 36, 5 through 8. And there's also a prophecy from Jeremiah against Jehoiakim in Jeremiah 22. The book divides up nicely into a conversation between God and uh, Habakkuk in which they each speak twice. And then the third chapter concludes with a chapter of, which is a psalm, which really in its beauty and, and musicality rivals anything in the book of Psalms. Chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, gives us Habakkuk's first question, the, the, the question or the complaint that starts off his discussion. And it's basically the question that we all ask today. How come sometimes we pray and we never get an answer? We pray and it's as if God's not listening. We pray and our prayers seem to stop at the ceiling. That's Habakkuk's problem. Lord, how long must I call for help? But you're not listening. Or I cry out to you, look at the violence around me. Look at my society. Look at my culture. Look at my country. It's full of violence. It's full of injustice. But you don't save. Why do you make me look at injustice? And why do you tolerate wrongdoing? It seems like the law itself is paralyzed. It seems like the law has been stood on its head. And so the wicked seem to hem in the righteous. That which is wicked passes for legal. That which is legal isn't just. There's no relationship between legality and justice. And so justice becomes perverted. There's corruption among rich and powerful people, and they take it out on the poor and the oppressed. Why do you not do something? Why do you not act? God answers Habakkuk, and he says, just watch. Just watch, and you'll see. I'm going to do something soon, in your day, that you wouldn't believe if I simply told you. So you're going to have to hear me tell you, and then you're going to have to watch and see, and you'll see that what I'm telling you is going to take place. I'm raising up the Babylonians. Yes, the Babylonians. They're a ruthless and they're an impetuous people. They only worship their own strength. They only develop their own power and they put all their time and resources into making themselves more powerful, stronger. They march across the earth. By this time, Habakkuk knew that Nebuchadnezzar had, or the 
emperor before Nebuchadnezzar had conquered uh, Nineveh. And Nebuchadnezzar himself would shortly conquer the other capital city of Assyria. They have promoted fear and dread among people so that when people hear that they are coming, they fear more than they should. Even their horses are faster than normal horses. They are fiercer. They fight. The horses themselves get into the battle, and they do a little fighting on their own. They're swifter than leopards. They're fiercer than wolves. Their cavalry gallops headlong. They're so fast and so powerful that they're like eagles swooping in to devour. But, and yes, they are morally bankrupt, morally evil, but for my purposes, they're the perfect tool. They are exactly what I want to use to accomplish my purposes. Don't get too hung up, Habakkuk, on their immorality. Don't get too hung up on their arrogance and their pride. I can use them just as they are, and in future, I will punish them. I'm going to use the Babylonians to discipline my own people. Habakkuk hears this message, and his next response is, but, 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 Lord. It's a response of amazement. It's a response of shock, even. He recognizes God's eternality. He recognizes God's holiness and His purity. And he wonders how such a God can use such an evil tool. He begins by saying, you are eternal. You never die. You have no beginning, no end. You have still appointed them to execute judgment. The tone of Habakkuk's question is incredulous. He can hardly believe what he's heard. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. You whose eyes are too pure to look on evil. You're going to use these people. You're going to use this nation. I don't understand what you're doing, Lord, because it seems like you've made the whole of humanity to be like fish in the sea. And he goes into an extended metaphor about humanity being like a, a a huge mass of fish in the ocean being caught with hooks and being caught with nets by the fishermen. The fisherman is the evil person. The fish are the general sense of humanity, the general population of the world. And this evil king, this evil emperor, being raised to power, raised to prominence, just dips into the ocean of humanity and pulls out and conquers and eats who he wishes. Is he to keep on doing this? Is this going to continue on? He says. He says, I'm going to stand at my watch station and see what happens. It seems like in this passage, the morality of God's instrument that he uses, the morality of the tools that God uses, doesn't matter. 
God uses both the evil and the good. If you think back, he used a relatively good Israelite nation after he redeemed them from Egypt and gave them the land and they went into the land and they were his instruments to judge the Canaanite people whose cup of iniquity referred to in Genesis chapter 15 when God was speaking to Abraham was not yet full in Abraham's day but by the time the Israelites were delivered from slavery their cup of iniquity of the Canaanites was full and the time had come for them to be judged and so God used the Israelites to judge the Canaanites now that the Israelites have proven to be just as disobedient and just as idolatrous and to work just as much against God as the other uh, the Canaanites had he's going to use an even more evil nation to discipline them so the morality of God's instruments doesn't seem to matter or to play a great part in his purpose and carrying out his plan. So God's second answer comes to Habakkuk in chapter 2, beginning with verse 2 and ending at verse 20. He says to Habakkuk, verse 3 of chapter 2, I beg your pardon, verse 2 of chapter 2, write this revelation down and make it plain on tablets so that it can be broadcast, it can be taken from place to place. In the first instance, the first answer, he was told, Habakkuk was told to watch. In the second uh, answer, he's told to write it down. For this revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it lingers, wait for it, it certainly will come and will not delay. Do not think that delay means that I've forgotten to do something. I have an appointed time, I have a date set, and I'm going to carry out this revelation that I'm about to speak of. It reminds me of Acts chapter 17 where Paul speaking to the Athenians on Mars Hill says that God has set a date by which he is going to judge, on which he is going to judge humanity using a particular person as the judge. And to prove it, he raised that man from the dead. And so God has set a judgment day. Jesus is going to be the judge and it's coming as certainly as yesterday. It is certain to come when God decides that it's the right time. And so uh, he tells Habakkuk, write this down and don't be uh, discouraged by delay. It will certainly come. See, this enemy is puffed up and his desires aren't righteous. But here's a jewel, one of three jewels in this uh, passage, the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. The text reads in a continuous fashion, but the righteous person lived by his faithfulness is a parenthesis in the sentence. So the sentence would read, see, the enemy is puffed up, his desires are not upright, indeed wine betrays him, he is arrogant and never at rest. But stuck in that sentence in a parenthesis is, but the righteous person will live 
by his faithfulness. This is one of the passages that is, this is a passage that's quoted three times in the New Testament, Romans 1, uh, 17, Galatians 3, 11, and um, Hebrews chapter 10. It's one of those passages that tells us that things are shifting. Before, uh, there was a righteousness that was based in faithfulness to God's promise, trusting in God's promise. Abraham heard God's promise, and he believed God, and God credited it to him as righteousness. And faithful people since Abraham, through the end of the Old Testament, into the New Testament, and the church age begins, they all believed the promise of God. And that faith was the foundation of their life. And as they lived in that faith and in that faithfulness, God blessed them in turn. Also, that faithfulness brought them eternal life because they were given righteousness on the basis of their faith. When we get to the New Testament, we find out that those who are justified, Romans chapter 5, are justified by faith. There's a shift in Romans chapter 3 in which formerly it was law, now it's a law of faith. And this faith is in the gift of God. And so that the righteous who accept that gift live both now and for eternity by that faith. Because he is greedy, because uh, as the grave and like death is never satisfied, he gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. This is a prophecy that has to do with uh, condemning uh, uh, both the king Zedekiah as well as the coming, raiding, um, uh, conquering king Nebuchadnezzar, and perhaps the uh, end of the age Antichrist as well. But certainly uh, these prophecies, these woes, of which there are five now in the rest of the chapter, will apply to uh, Zedekiah and to Nebuchadnezzar. All the people that he conquers and takes captive will someday rise up against him. Everything that he does here, Zedekiah or Nebuchadnezzar, will ultimately turn back upon him. Will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn, saying, Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. This could apply to, Zedekiah, to uh, Jehoiakim. I beg your pardon. If I've said Zedekiah, I didn't mean Zedekiah. I meant Jehoiakim. So go back in your mind and substitute Jehoiakim for all the Zedekiahs that <laughs> I've said. <laughs> Woe to him who piles up stolen goods. That could apply to Zedekiah. Could certainly apply to Nebuchadnezzar. And it could certainly apply to the Antichrist at the end of the tribulation. Woe, the second woe in verse 9. Woe to him who builds his house by unjust gain. That could apply to Zedekiah who conscripted uh, Jews to build his house without paying them. Setting his nest on high to escape. Uh, he, he felt that there would be 
security by building his house on a high place, but the woe pronounces a, a prophecy against him in which the stones, the very stones and, and, and walls of, and woodwork of the house will cry out and will condemn him in terms of how he did it and the injustice of the way that he brought it about. Could apply to Zedekiah, could apply to Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, in uh, chapter 4 of Daniel, you'll find that Nebuchadnezzar is having a moment of arrogance. Is not this the great Babylon that I have built? And by the end of the chapter, he's uh, living outdoors and uh, growing his hair and nails excessively long until he realizes that God is the one who is in charge of all things, even him. The third woe says, Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by injustice. Has not the Lord determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire? In other words, in Judea as well as in other nations, all that people do at the behest of their leaders to build and to make strong and to promote eventually comes to nothing. The city of Jerusalem would later be burned and all the people's labor under, Zedek, under Jehoiakim would come to nothing. And then another jewel in the middle of this passage, verse 14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord, glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is a reference to the millennial kingdom wherein Jesus Christ will reign personally and visibly in Jerusalem for a thousand years. Fourth woe, woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors, making them drunk so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. This is a, a, a con condemnation of those who get their enemies drunk so that they can humiliate them with lewd experiences and... Um, enjoy themselves sensually in an evil way. It will come back to you. You, too, will be uh, drunk and your nakedness will be exposed. Every one of the evils that is condemned in these woes comes back upon the perpetrator. The final one is idolatry. In verse 18, God says to Habakkuk, of what value is an idol carved by a craftsman an image that teaches can an image or an image that teaches lies the one who makes it trusts in his own creation he makes idols that cannot speak so woe to him who says to the wood come to life woe to him who says to the idol that he made speak it's foolish it's crazy but people do it Anyway, because it makes them feel as if they have power, and yet it's all futile. The third jewel in this passage, verse 20, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. The whole, the whole problem, the whole evil of worshiping idols, worshiping the creation of our own hands, is contrasted with the fact that the true God, the living God, is in His holy temple. He speaks, we are silent. And when He speaks, we need to listen. 
So all five of the woes will be reversed on the perpetrators. As I said, these prophecies could apply to uh, Jehoiakim, and they could apply to Nebuchadnezzar later. Some of them could also apply to the Antichrist at the end of the tribulation, just before the millennial kingdom. But for um, Habakkuk's purposes and Habakkuk's uh, question, Babylon, which I'm going to use to punish Israel or Judah, will be in turn punished. And through it all, the righteous will live by faith. Babylon is punished twice in history, once in 539 B.C., the night of Belshazzar's wine-soaked party in Daniel chapter 5, when the writing appears on the wall, and uh, Daniel is called to translate it. And he translates it, uh, you have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. Tonight your kingdom will be taken from you and given to the Medes and the Persians. And that very night, the Medes and the Persians conquered Babylon and uh, killed Belshazzar. You can read about it in Daniel chapter 5. The second time Babylon is punished is a rebuilt Babylon in the end time period known as the day of the Lord. The Antichrist rebuilds Babylon and God destroys it. Jesus Christ comes again and destroys the Antichrist and his uh, city, his headquarters city in, uh, of Babylon. You can read about it in Revelation chapter 17 and 18. And God preserves at that point a remnant of Israel to enter the millennium during which Jesus reigns personally and visibly. Then the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea back in the earlier part of the chapter. Some of these descriptions of the downfall of Babylon in Habakkuk seem to be greater in scope than the defeat in 539, but they fit better with the downfall of Babylon in the end times described in Isaiah 14, 3 to 23 and Revelation 17 and 18. But through it all, the righteous will live by faith. In the New Testament, <clears throat> as I mentioned earlier, the justified ones are justified by faith. They are declared righteous by faith. In Habakkuk's time, Old Testament righteous live by faith in the promise of a coming deliverer. In the New Testament, we live in the promise of redemption and justification by faith actually having happened. So when Habakkuk hears the second, um, uh, the second reply from God, he is moved to forget about trying to understand God. Forget about trying to figure God out or analyze His ways in the world. He's moved instead to simply worship. And so in the third chapter of Habakkuk, the first 15 verses are simply worship. He worships God for His various characteristics, and he comes to the end of verse 15 and moves into verse 16 with his own personal response. He says, I heard and my heart pounded, my lips quivered at the sound. 
decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. It soon seems like he practically collapses here after hearing the message from God, after hearing what God is going to do and responding in worship and praise to God, he tells us how he felt when he heard and finally comprehended the message. He felt like he was going into shock. He practically collapsed. Having said that, he says, I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. And then he says, no matter how bad things get, if there's no buds on the fig tree, no grapes on the vine, the olive crop fails and the fields produce no fruit, no sheep in the pen, no cattle in the stall, when things are that bad, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. Sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. It's his response to God's overarching, omnipotent plan and the carrying out of his just purpose and plan in the world. We face two extremes, I think, in our time and our day. There's the extreme that says our time is the worst of all times. And the other extreme says our time is the best of all times. It's really neither one at the moment. But in this world, there will always be evil enough to cause believers to ask, how long, O Lord? That's a perennial prayer on the part of the believer in Jesus Christ. Habakkuk's initial lack of understanding, though, fades into insignificance when he realizes that God has the question of evil covered. We try to figure out how an omnipotent, uh, righteous, and holy God can permit evil, but we have to realize that it's all playing out over a period of time and that the time will come when God will rectify all injustice. Every perpetrator of every crime will be perfectly judged and, and appropriately sentenced. Understanding didn't really matter in the end, but it was faith, devotion, and trust. That's what mattered for Habakkuk in the end. You see, if we start with our questions and we ask God why, the answers are seldom what we want to hear. But in chapter 3, Habakkuk starts with God, and in the end, he's at peace. He realizes that God has a plan, and he wants us to trust him. Katharina von Schlegel wrote a hymn years ago. She wrote it in German, got translated into English by a Scotswoman and set to a, a tune by uh, a Finnish composer, Sibelius. The second verse reads like this, Be still, my soul, thy God doth undertake to guide the future as he has the past. Thy hope, thy confidence, let nothing shake. All now mysterious shall be bright at last. Be still, my soul. The waves and winds still know the voice of him who ruled them while he dwelt below. J. Vernon McGee said, This is God's universe and God does things his way. 
you may have a better way, but you don't have a universe. Father in heaven, thank you that you are the one who controls all things. You control all things after your own uh, purpose and plan, which is wise and just and will be carried out at a certain date in the future. We relax. We rejoice. We find our great security and peace in knowing you and in following you and in trusting you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.